we just really have to question what cheap food is doing to us, the environment, and also to our farmers and producers. Hello and welcome to One Bite, a podcast exploring the Australian food system. I'm your host, Xavier Callio, a food researcher and sustainability student at the University of Sydney. This series focuses on the impacts of COVID-19 and how we build back better. We will meet Australians working from farm to fork and beyond, gaining diverse perspectives on our food system and how we can shift to more sustainable, resilient and fair food. So grab your knife, fork and spoon and join me as we digest the Australian foodscape, one bite at a time. Hello and welcome, Xavier here. Today I'll be speaking with Vanessa to get a supermarket perspective on the COVID situation. Unfortunately, we had a bit of a crackle from Vanessa's microphone during the interview, so apologies in advance. I'd like to start by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of the lands that I'm on, and pay my respect to their elders, past, present and emerging. Vanessa is a fellow Master of Sustainability student at Sydney Uni, food lover and avid beginner gardener. Vanessa works at an independent food retailer with 25 stores in New South Wales, predominantly in Sydney. She is part of their graduate program working on sustainability, responsible supply chains and product development. Her professional interest is how we can make fair, sustainable and nutritious food systems accessible for all. Welcome to One Bite, Vanessa. It's great to have you on the podcast. Hi, Xavier. Thanks so much for having me on. So my first question is, what are you really enjoying eating right now? (laughs) Well, actually, I've been eating this delicious cold salad bowl with um, soba noodles and edamame and tofu. And um, that's kind of been my go-to lunch for the past week or so. (laughs) I'm not sick of it yet, so it must be pretty good. Healthy and nutritious. (laughs) Is that something you're making yourself? Yep. Yep, definitely. And skilled. It's not, I mean, it's not very um, hard. You just throw it all in the bowl. Well, that's what, that's what we like when it's healthy and nutritious and easy. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about your journey into food? Yeah, so I think for me, my food journey started as a kid because I was really lucky to grow up with a family that loved cooking from scratch every single day and my both my parents are super passionate about food and I grew up where in a family where every night we'd sit down to dinner at the table um, and have a long talk about our day and that would always be over a shared meal that that either my mum or dad had, had cooked from scratch and it wasn't until I was a bit older that I realized that that wasn't the norm in Australia and that and how lucky I was to have grown up in that environment where I could really, really value good food. And from there, I just kind of was like, why can't everyone have this? So that got me on the track of why aren't people eating real food? And then coupled with my learnings from the Masters of Sustainability and and learning about how food systems work and how food security is affecting so many Australians and how we've all lost our connection to our food and where it comes from and how it's grown and I was like okay this is this is my passion this is me forever (laughs) it's uh it's definitely a thing and you started did you start your little balcony veggie garden after beginning this course or was that something you were already doing well I started after but that's only because I moved 
to my current apartment after starting the course. So before that, I was still living at my parents' place and we have always had a little garden growing. Like we've got um, some fruit trees and lettuce and lots of herbs and we've grown potatoes quite a few times. So I've always grown up with like a connection to growing food and like knowing where it's coming from. Yeah. Yeah. No, my mum always had a little veggie patch as well. So that's a good, it's a good entry into that growing your own food. So it's really great to have you to kind of talk about a supermarket perspective on on the impacts of COVID. And, and obviously it was uh, pretty significant at the beginning there. We saw, you know, lots of empty shelves and the supply chains really kind of struggling. So can you tell us a bit about how that played out from your perspective? Yeah, it was really crazy because I think the key thing that we have to remember is that it wasn't a shortage of food. It was just an inability to distribute it as fast as people were buying and that hadn't really happened before. So all of the supply chains were kind of rocked by that. And in some cases there were actual shortages because we we weren't able to say import a particular product because of the lead times and and things like that but there wasn't actually a shortage of food it was just it was just a problem with um, the timing and the supply but it was pretty crazy to see that from a consumer perspective it's when you see those empty shelves your instinct is to panic but behind all of that was just volumes and volumes of food that was being ordered to try and get them get them in on time. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, it really kind of demonstrated some of the weakness in the in the chain in terms of that kind of supply supply side. And we have sort of this just in time supermarket system. And yeah, I think it, you know, it was a really visual thing. And I think once the shelves started to look a bit empty, it kind of fueled a bit more of that kind of panic buying. I mean, the pandemic's also come off the back of prolonged drought, then crazy bushfires, and then flooding. So, you know, we sort of see the pandemic as as that kind of trigger for the empty shelves, but the reality is there's sort of some longer-term things going on. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of people didn't quite realise how badly those catastrophic events had affected um, farming in Australia because that kind of thing had never happened and all that they were seeing and all they were thinking about, thinking about was the pandemic and, um, and the shortage of food or perceived shortage of food when really there was still a backlog of affected produce from the bushfires and the droughts. And I think what really stood out for me was this particular customer who wrote in and they were asking why broccoli was $14.99 a kilo, which is expensive, but they kept saying, you know, well, everyone needs food right now. Why are you hiking the prices up? If you have such a good relationship with your farmers as you as you say you do, why don't you negotiate with them to get the price down? And I was just shocked because not only was broccoli out of season, there was such a high demand for it that we couldn't get it and so prices were high. And also the farmers had been affected by the bushfires, the drought and also the flood that happened just after the bushfires. So it really was quite an awful time for fresh produce and it really, really stood out to me that this customer 
had such a disconnect to how their food was produced and it's not just like if you want broccoli you can have it it has to go through a full cycle of growing and we have to wait and all of these things and now that every piece of food was a highly prized value item in our stores people just expected it to be there when that that it was going to be yeah it's sort of impossible for that to be the case yeah and I think that seasonality thing is is really key there I mean we we've become used to things being available year round and and people have really lost that knowledge about seasonality and you know broccoli isn't in season in March no (laughs) it's a winter veg it's a brassica yeah was there anything that either was kind of in really high demand that surprised you or anything at the other end that people were not buying that you were kind of surprised about? Um, I was surprised about the flour because uh, you couldn't find it really anywhere, all kinds of flour from like self-raising to almond flour to just normal plain flour. And that surprised me because from what I know from people is that they don't cook from scratch, they don't bake. And so why were they suddenly going to these staple items that you can have in your pantry, sure, and they're useful, but only if you actually cook with them. So maybe lockdown was getting people to use them more, but I was quite surprised that those were the items that were going so fast. Like I would have thought that muscle chef meals and like pre-made lasagnas would have been more popular than flour. So I did find that quite surprising. But in terms of that, like I think a lot of supermarkets really had to scramble to source those things like the tinned beans and the and the flour and I know for my particular employer a lot of the strict sourcing policies and things like that went out the window just so they could get their hands on their stock and have stock on shelves because the customers were demanding it essentially yeah yeah anecdotally um I've sort of had a conversation with someone who works in food safety standards and uh a similar thing with some of the the food safety standards being relaxed quite a bit in order to get food yeah. on the shelves, which yeah. I thought was quite interesting. Uh, but I but I haven't been able to kind of dig into that too much. I haven't been able to find anything to back it up. Yeah, well, I think anecdotally, again, we did deal with that. The rules on um, changing nutritional panels uh, were relaxed. So things like if a supplier had changed the ingredients in a soup because they couldn't get African spices so they had to use Indian spices instead. They didn't actually have to specify that in the usual way just because they were trying to put the food out as fast as possible. So I'm I'm not sure how I feel about those relaxations of the rules but I understand that it's important to keep food on shelves during such a crazy time yeah it is it is but you know it'd be interesting to sort of look at that and and see where that's at now if that's kind of gone back to the usual regulations or that kind of thing yeah yeah but another issue I wanted to um bring up is the sort of there's a lot of discussion at the moment about farm labor shortages and you know particularly now as we're getting into the warmer months and, you know, lots of things are starting to come into season. 
and they're sort of saying, you know, in the lead up to Christmas, we're, we're concerned about kind of food supply. Is that something that has been on the radar? Yeah, definitely. Uh, for a number of months, even since I'd say as far back as May or June, people have been talking about especially the summer fruits coming down from Queensland, the tropical fruits like mangoes and avocados and things like that. There's, they're going to be affected by labour shortages. I don't think we've seen too much of it yet, but then there's so much happens in the background that it's hard to know. So even though we're seeing stock come in, how much is being wasted in the fields? Like how, how can you quantify that? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there is sort of some reports about that, about just not having the labour and therefore kind of just picking the best of the crop because it's not worth it's not worth it. They don't have the, the capacity to, to kind of to pick everything and, and even some some kind of things have come out about farmers sort of just ploughing things back in, which, uh, you know, we've, we've seen previously with the Australian food system and, and with, you know, the supermarket standards and, and even, you know, the, the farm gate prices when we're importing stuff from overseas at a cheaper rate than, than in Australia. Yeah. So, I mean, on the supermarket landscape, Australia's kind of the most concentrated landscape in the world. And, you know, the two big supermarkets um, control over 66% of the market and then you've got a couple of other smaller players well mid-sized players Aldi and Metcash which so those four together have over 80%. Isn't it crazy? (laughs) Yeah yeah so how do you see the kind of power of the duopoly playing out in the Australian food system? Ah it's tough it's 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 really unfair, not only for small businesses, but also for consumers because they've created this false sense of illusion of how cheap food is or what the price of food should be and the kind of stuff that's available as well. Because you go into a Woolies, a Coles, and everything is the same. Like there's no diversity across um, the supermarkets and maybe Aldi's a little bit different, but they might have their own brand stuff, but it's still the same kind of product. So there's just no diversity and in terms of pricing, because these supermarkets have so much market power, it just means that the, the independents can't buy products for the price that the, the big players are selling them for, which is tough um, because you can be priced out of the market in some areas. And I think a lot of the criticisms of independent supermarkets is that they're too expensive, but what you're paying for is the real cost of food, I think, where companies don't have the opportunity or the or the market power, I should say, to undercut their suppliers and and just force food down cheaper and cheaper and cheaper because customers don't see that. They don't really appreciate that what they're paying for in an independent is what food actually costs. And, of course, there are all sorts of other issues like wages in Australia and, and the affordability of food as a, as a percentage of that. But I think that that's a separate issue and we need to become more aware of what food costs and not just the price but also the environmental impacts of of cheap food yeah uh absolutely and i think you know that that market power is um you know quite well illustrated um there's a 
journalist Malcolm Knox, who did uh, wrote a book and a very eye-opening article called Supermarket Monsters, and, and he speaks to, you know, one lettuce grower in Tasmania who, you know, now wastes more lettuce than he used to grow because of having to be able to supply the largest possible order from a supermarket and then not being able to sell what they don't take on anywhere else. And, and that kind of food waste that the system creates the way it's set up. That's so sad. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I think, you, you know, we sort of look at, you know, the war on waste really kind of opened up that food waste can of worms for the general public. And, and we saw kind of the, the big two bringing in their imperfect fruit and veg kind of things which sort of isn't really addressing the issue of the fact that the standards are actually their own. Not at all. And I think it's a little bit unfair to push that decision onto the consumer because it doesn't capture all of the food waste that's happening at the farm gate or or just somewhere along the processing line. And also, why do we have those standards anyway? Shouldn't all fruit and veggies be the same? It's like if it was if it was me in charge, I'd put all the imperfects and the odd bunches and, and all of them all together and, and just mix them up and everyone would just have to pick it from a big basket of potatoes that actually all look the same so I don't I don't really understand what makes a an ugly potato (laughs) yeah yeah and I think it's buying into that how the duopoly and that that market power has really shaped the foodscape you know from the down down prices are down where it's basically a race to the bottom and you know squeezing the farmers and squeezing everybody else to sort of make a profit and I mean we saw that play out massively with the the sort of milk wars yeah and you know I think there's um, a statistic that every Australian man woman and child spends a hundred dollars a week on food and merchandise etc from one of the big two uh, even if you don't shop there that's that's kind of how it, it averages out and I think we need to question what it is that's important to us from our food system, is it just convenience and the lowest possible price or do we want to kind of consider quality and some of the environmental and sustainability issues? Mm. Well, I think to me that answer is pretty clear. I don't think that going for the down-down prices are down approach is sustainable, not just environmentally sustainable because obviously there's a whole host of issues there but if you look at the social um, sustainability side of it you know how is this kind of undercutting affecting our primary producers and will they be able to stay afloat um, in a market where milk is a dollar a litre it's just it's just not affordable for anyone and as well for consumers the cheaper the food obviously usually um, the quality is a lot worse and what is that doing to our health like what are these discretionary foods or like these crops that have just been monocropped year in year out what's it doing to our microbiome and and things like that and also looking at like the you know coronary heart disease and diabetes and and we just really have to question what cheap food is doing to us the environment and also to our farmers and producers and I don't think that's fair and I don't think 
if you pitch that to anyone, that they would agree that it's fair. But unfortunately, we live in a system where, as you said, everywhere you go, you're putting money back into the big players, whether you like it or not. And it takes a lot of conscious effort for the consumer to kind of steer away from that. Yeah. And, and you know, there's been kind of multiple competition watchdog investigations into the kind of market share of the big two and, and around competition and and collusion even. Um, and, you know, one very interesting thing that's that's happened during the pandemic is they've relaxed their regulations around those supermarkets being able to work together in order to ensure supply. And then at the same time, they're also running an inquiry into perishable agricultural goods and how the kind of big two are treating suppliers. Ah, oh, just so awful. It's so awful. And you've got to see two sides of the coin on this one because on the one hand, everyone is freaking out during the pandemic or the first few stages of the pandemic when when everything went into lockdown and panic buying was rife. And I think that the government intervention in relaxing a few of those laws is probably a good thing. But on the flip side of that is that we have four big supermarkets with 80% of the market share. And if they're able to work together, how is that going to affect everyone else? Yeah, that is definitely a question. And, you know, I sort of, I had a bit of a, a look. It was quite difficult to find any information on the uh, task force. And I have contacted the ACCC to, to try and get a bit more information so the supermarket task force is uh, being managed by DFAT, apparently, because there were some questions asked in Parliament by Janet Rice about the different kind of entities that have been involved in that, government and private. And, you know, it's quite interesting that uh, the Australian Beverages Council mm. is uh, is part of that. And we've got Amazon in there. We've got the convenience stores in there we've got you know the big players yeah Costco Coles Woolworth like it's you know Kmart Kmart apparently is part of the grocery supply chain (laughs) yeah well you can imagine the scale of all of their networks combined the power of that like it's just insane to think about that like Amazon and together with the Woolworths group and Coles and like their supply chains are just so extensive on their own. And then all combined, you can see how it would be really effective in getting food on the table, but it's really hard not to be skeptical of this one. And um, I want to see the good in it, but I'm also a bit worried about all of these massive, massive corporations being able to join up their supply networks. I think that's quite worrying. But luckily, the supermarket task force, I believe, is going to be wrapping up in March 2021. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So it did get extended recently. It was originally till, I think, September, and then it's been extended till March next year to just allow that to continue to happen. So, yeah, I have... I have tried to contact the ACCC to get some more information about that, and I'll keep the listeners posted if anything uh, comes yeah, up. Yeah, I hope but, you do. I yeah, hope you get just, back. Well, we'll see. I just I thought it was quite interesting that those two things were happening in tandem. Yeah, yeah. seems very incongruous. It does. So something that I know you're working on at the moment is around sustainable sourcing. 
which is very complex. And, and I just wonder if you could uh, fill us in a bit on that. Yeah. So I'm actually only looking at sustainable sourcing of groceries. So think of your non-perishable items like coffee and tea and beans and things like that, because the scale of it is just too big to look at everything all at once. So if we focus in on those non-perishable items, it's still incredibly complex. And to break it down, you can kind of separate the supply chain into your um, three pillars of sustainability. So the environment, the community and the economy. And when you go further into that, there are so many little details that you have to consider if you want a truly sustainable supply chain. So I think there are a couple of ways to go about it. And no one, I don't think, can ever be 100% sustainable because we don't live in a world where our food system supports that. We live in a very unsustainable food system, so it's very, very hard to kind of go against the grain. But a lot of companies are starting to work together on traceability, and that's done through like an external third-party auditor who will help you trace everything back to the producer. But the other problem with that is that there's so many of them and so many different schemes that every um, product that you have, there's like a thousand different schemes for verifying and tracing and all of that thing. So you've got to work through all the noise that's happening. And for example, if you're looking at commodities, you have palm oil or coffee. And while it's quite commonly known that people want sustainably sourced palm oil or palm oil free or ethically traded coffee, within those products, you've got several different certification bodies. You've got Fair Trade, you've got the Rainforest Alliance and that kind of thing. And then we have soy and and that's not even well known as a unsustainable product. And only two to three percent of global soy trade is verified sustainable and that's not even including like non-GMO soy, non-paraquat soy, which is this really toxic spray that they use in soy production. And I've just named three products there and it's already so, so complicated. So I think when you're looking at the sustainable supply chain, you have to hone in on a couple of things that you know you can be prescriptive about. And one of them might be having certain criteria for the environmental standards that your suppliers hold and reaching out to them and saying, hey, look, can you let us know what certifications you have, whether you have a sustainability plan and what you're doing about it. And that might include things like energy, pollution and packaging and being a little bit more specific on what you're looking for. But there's no way that you can go all the way upstream and demand sustainability from each and every one of your suppliers. So I think what it comes down to, for me anyway, is going with the don't boycott influence. So rather than saying we're not going to take your products in because you don't have certified soy, it's saying, hey, we care about where our soy comes from. So we'd really appreciate if you start looking into where it is and let us know and give us some feedback because we want to work with you and we want to help your product be more sustainable as well so that we can sell that to our customers. So I think taking that approach has a lot more positive effect on suppliers and and in the supply chain upstream because if you're just saying, no, we're not going to sell it because you can't tell us where your soy comes from, they're just going to take their business somewhere else and sell it like it is. 
and it's probably not going to make as much of an impact as if you just say, hey, we want to care about this. Tell us what you know. And sometimes they surprise you and say, you know, oh, this is actually a very sustainable product, but we don't market it that way because nobody cares. And I've encountered that before with packaging where I've said, you know, we really want to have sustainable packaging in this particular product. What can you do about it? And they were like, oh, but we're actually meeting this and this and this and we're part of the Australian packaging government and everything. And I was like, that's amazing. Why don't you tell people? And they're like, well, because most people don't care. So it's less effort for us to just leave it and let you know if you ask which is just crazy. So you never know what you'll dig up. <laughs> That's really interesting because, you know, there's a lot of discussion about, well, we we do what the consumer wants, but, you know, it's that point of, well, is it about kind of bringing in some more stringent regulations on things to kind of try and shape things? Because, you know, consumer power is uh, complex, especially when you, you know, you sort of talk about, the market share of the duopoly and I know at the beginning of the uh, pandemic my local independent grocery store closed down and we got the third Woolworths in my suburb (laughs) as a consumer to try and shop elsewhere it's like how do I do it where do I put my money (laughs) yeah I mean with the sort of sustainability stuff there's there's always going to be trade-offs and you know, we've sort of got to got to look at that and, and understand what it is. And I think if we're, if we're not even looking, we, we're not measuring. And if we're not measuring, we don't know. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's really great that your approach is definitely that, that influence as opposed to boycott because if you are able to kind of get people on board and find out what people are actually doing, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that has definitely been interesting for me because when you look at it from the outside, you think, okay, this is a huge pile of mess and how am I going to sort through it all? But once you start talking to people, a lot of people really do care about it and a lot of companies are doing a lot of things within the space even if they're not marketing it, which is a good thing because I definitely think that industry has a massive role to play in accountability in, in sort of the sustainability space and also in other spaces too. But I, I do believe that without strong government regulation and having to be accountable to a, to a third party, I don't think that industries will ever be able to, to go all the way with it because where some companies might be doing really well, there will always be those who are doing just like the smallest percentage of things that they can get away with. So there definitely has to be more stringent regulations around sustainability and sustainable supply because if we want food into the future to feed 10 billion, 11 billion people, um, we're going to have to start cleaning up after ourselves, I think. Yeah, yeah, we are. So I wanted to just finish up by asking you, what's uh, something that brings you hope? around this (laughs) I think in light of the pandemic and all of this craziness that's happened people have started to value food more and to want to know better where their food comes from they want to know that it's safe that it's healthy and that kind of thing but also I think people are reconnecting to like the joy of food which makes me really happy because that's something that I'm super passionate about and even just things like during lockdown, 
people starting to grow their own herbs on their windowsill. That few dollars that you're saving on basil is a few dollars that you're taking away from the big players. And I think like just reconnecting ourselves with, with a local and more sustainable food system with a focus on real food is, is coming and that gives me hope. Yeah, that's the pandemic gardening thing is definitely, and the pandemic cooking, the baking, all of it, Yeah, you know, just amazing. getting people re-engaged in it. It's what we need. So thanks so much. It's been fantastic chatting with you. And that brings us to the end of One Bite for this week. So thank you for listening. I'm your host, Xavier Callio, and I've been talking with Vanessa Ann about supermarkets and sustainable supply chains and bringing hope through the pandemic. So (laughs) you can find more information in the show notes or head over to the website at onebitepod.com. Uh, And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It helps others to find us and gives us the warm fuzzies. So I'll see you next time. Bye.